Welcome to Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. This is episode 13, where I have on Rudy Caceres. Rudy Caceres is really my inspiration for starting this podcast. About 10 months ago, in October of 2017, he had me on one of his Facebook Live interview shows. He interviewed me right before I hopped into the anatomy lab, so I remember wearing scrubs. I was in the student affairs office conducting this interview with him, and he really did a great job interviewing me, and I had so much fun on his his show that I decided to start my own podcast. So here we go. But let's just start this podcast off as, you know, where is Rudy Caceres today and what are you doing? Well, hey, everyone. Um, my name is Rudy Caceres and I'm a mental health advocate, a public speaker. I make videos. I do Facebook lives. I host my own show called no restraints with Rudy Caceres, where I interview mental health advocates uh, and other movers and shakers in the world uh, on my own page, facebook.com slash Rudy Caceres. And you can also find past episodes on rudycaceres.com. And so I also produce shows and storytelling events. So I've done three on my own, and I'm also producing a show in partnership with This Is My Brave, which is a national nonprofit that puts on storytelling events centered around mental health all over the country. And my show will open on Saturday, September 22nd, 2018, which is hopefully uh, before the show goes up. Oh, it will. This show will go up today, so I will do my best to help. Oh, my God, that. really? Yeah, yeah. You know, I got I got tests and stuff covered up, so I got to pump this bad boy out as quick as I can. But I am determined to keep doing this podcast throughout, uh, you know, the second year of med school. So this this is your brave event that you're talking about. This is in L.A., right? Yes, this is my brave. Not this is your brave. It's oh, not your brave, did Logan. Did I say this is your brave? I meant this, <laughs> this is, is my brave. My brave. Only but... you can stop forest fires. <laughs> Very relevant to what we're talking about, considering you are located in L.A. right now and I'm located in Washington. It seems like everywhere is just burning down right now. But if you are listening, if you are in the L.A. area, please check out that event. I wish I could be uh, present at that event, but hopefully one day, Rudy, you will maybe create one of those uh, events, maybe in Portland or Seattle, because that will at least be much, much easier for me to get to. I mean, you could try. I could try, but dude, I'm broke. I'm living off student loans right now. Just off the government as much as I can. So please have one a little bit further north, please, for me. (laughs) I, I, I'm, I'm certain there will be a Portland show in not too distant future. Okay. That's literally three hours away. I could make that work for sure. Easily. Okay. Easily. So let's kind of educate the listeners really where all of this sort of started for you. Like when did you start having any sort of mental health challenges in your life? Um, pretty much my entire life. I remember the first memory I have is when I was three years old and my brothers and sister were playing house and they left me out because I was just too young, I guess. But I felt like I was being abandoned and I've always dealt with abandonment issues my entire life, abuse issues and just horrible depression, anxiety, just feelings of loneliness and like not worthy of being loved. So a healthy adulthood, that does not make. <laughs> but it was more in my adulthood, specifically when I was in the army where I had a mental breakdown that led to me being discharged from the army and eventually uh, being diagnosed with bipolar. But I was originally diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia because of the catatonic episodes that I would have where I'd freeze up and wouldn't be able to move for hours and have to take to the boat sooner. So now prior to entering the army, you know, when you were having those feelings of abandonment, were you at all talking to any therapists or, or really any professional? Yeah, I'd talk to a, my fair share of therapists and social workers, and none of them really seemed to click. And the ones that did would eventually move on, and then it would add on to that feeling of abandonment. So I had a deep distrust for mental health professionals. And I certainly wasn't going to talk to one when I was in the Army. Yeah. So that was that would open up a whole nother can of worms and I didn't want anyone to know how badly I was suffering. So now I imagine because you were able to enter the army, um, at least at that time you weren't taking any like uh psychiatric medication. Um, did they try to put you any on any psychiatric medication before the army? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember once like going to a child's uh, psychiatrist and begging him to be put on some kind of ADHD medication because I thought that that was the issue I had because I don't know. I don't even know if it's a real thing, but in my mind, I was speaking faster than I can think, which led to me having um, articulation issues. So like hmm. people can understand what I was saying most of the time. And I thought that was because I had ADHD where my mind was racing so fast that like the words were just coming out before I can like fully articulate them. So yeah. that was like pretty much the only time I'd ever came close to being on meds. I wasn't really put on meds until I was had my breakdown in the army. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that when you say you were thinking almost faster than you can articulate, at least I felt that a lot, a lot of times during manic episodes. And it almost, for me, produces out like word diarrhea or word salad where I'm just spitting out all these crazy words and everyone's like, what the hell are you talking about? So I wonder if even at a young age like that, you were, you know, expressing some of the symptoms you could have been feeling from your bipolar disorder. Yeah, I do think that with bipolar, it's... You can experience a lot of the symptoms without necessarily being super manic or depressed where mm -hmm. it's it's like it's it's the same thing. Like there are times where I have a lot of energy. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm in a manic episode. There'll be times where I'm really, really sad and lethargic. It doesn't mean like I'm in a depressive episode that's gonna be like impossible to kick out of. So yeah, I, I think about that a lot of times. You what do you think of that about like just having like this just fun cornucopia of manic uh, bipolar symptoms that you experience them, but you're not necessarily in an oppressive or manic state. Well, I you brought up a topic that I actually saw in one of your most recent videos that I really, really liked, where you were talking about medication for bipolar disorder. And what I hear a lot of people say is they're afraid to take medication because they don't want to be turned into a zombie and they don't want to lose that mania kind of fun aspect almost of bipolar disorder and I still feel episodes of depression and I still feel elements of mania and I don't want it to go away and I'm glad that the medication that I'm on still allows me to feel some of those sensations and really that the medication that I'm taking helps take out those crazy extremes where instead of being so depressed we're the point where I think I you know I'm worthless and a total loser and you know could potentially do something harmful to myself or on the other side of the coin being so manic where I'm outside and running around like a wild person or driving my car 80 miles an hour in a 25 zone you know I want to stay in control so I still like having those sensations of being slightly manic and slightly depressive and in the textbooks that we're using at school they call this hypomania and so I, I did a lecture at my school and I was describing that sensation I was like I don't really like hypomania but just to play on these words I definitely feel hypo hypomania probably every single day like little episodes of euphoria and oh my god it's amazing and I think that's something that everyone can really relate to and like i think that just because me and you have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder doesn't mean that we're the only ones that exclusively feel these feelings of mania like everyone can relate to some degree at least what this feels like yeah i think that about any mental illness diagnosis i think we've all had experiences where we've seen things that others haven't or heard things that others haven't but we're not diagnosed with schizophrenia same thing with mania and depression. Everyone at one point in their life has had elements of mania and depression and in panic disorder. And that's just part of the human spectrum of emotions. And I, I'm glad you mentioned about medications to take the edge off the extremes because that, for me, that's what medications should help with. I don't want to be cured of bipolar. I don't want to have none of these so-called symptoms. For me, they're part of what make Rudy Caceres. Other people may not get that. Other people may not want these same elements, these same experiences, these same emotions. And that's totally fine by them. I have a problem, though, when other people tell me what is healthy and what isn't healthy for me. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I imagine... I, I really look at you as you're the only advocate that I know that's so strongly against forced mental health care and I'm so thankful that you know you're in my life and that I can look to you because my experience with the mental health system is I voluntarily entered the psych ward and so I think my experiences are just so much different than someone who in your shoes 
uh, you know, had really a traumatic experience. And I'm actually listening to The Body Keeps the Score. Have you ever heard of this book? I have a copy in my library. Okay, yeah, and I absolutely love it. And I love his philosophy of he thinks that almost, you know, he calls it 70% of all mental illnesses can be attributed to trauma. And I just look at that forced mental health care as so, so incredibly traumatic, but it's something that I also didn't personal experience. So can you tell the listeners what your experience was with, with being forcibly hospitalized when, uh, I believe the first time was when you were in the army in that catatonic state? Yeah, and I think for me, to sum it all up, the scariest thing about not only me being forcibly hospitalized, but others is the lack of, um, or the taking away of choice. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I couldn't choose to go to this place, and many people don't. So it's a, it's a different experience when someone has the choice. Now, I've talked to people who have chosen to be, to be hospitalized, to be inpatient, and it's a crapshoot. They'll have times where it's great that kept them alive and they go back in again even if it's just months later and it's the worst experience they've ever had for me it's it's a hospital it's you go there there's other people with kind of similar experiences although there's people that are in more extreme states than i was in and it doesn't matter that they the food can be amazing the walls can be like filled with artworks and Monet's and whatever you can show you like uh, big screen movies every day. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that I didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. I'm confined against my will. I think that's a big element of hospitalization that is not talked about enough. It's the confinement and you can pretty it up as much as you want, but for someone who doesn't want, want to be confined, then that can be extremely traumatic and it leads to people not trusting the mental health care system anymore. If that's that's something that can happen from opening up or quote unquote getting help, then no, it's going to do more damage than good. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm certainly in the infancy of my medical career, but one research topic that I would love to go into is comparing outcomes of forced treatment versus voluntary treatment. Because, I mean, and this is just me being theoretical here, but I can't imagine it produces, most of the time, quality outcomes versus someone who, in my situation, like, I, at the end of the day, chose and wanted to go there, and I wasn't forced in there. So what what do you think about that theory? Well, I think there's a lot of gaslighting, too. So oftentimes we're told that the hospitalization was for our own good. I've been told by people, it's like, hey, Rudy, like you're this big time mental health advocate now. Aren't you glad that you were hospitalized when you were? Otherwise, who knows what would happen? And that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that we're told. And it's 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 bullshit. Like if you were to tell someone who was a victim of domestic violence and who became an advocate, you would tell them, well, it's a, it's a good thing that you were abused because like now you get to be this big time advocate and it is abuse. It's a different kind of abuse, but it is abuse all the same. And if someone is um, forcing a catheter up my urethra and strip searching me, that is sexual abuse. We don't talk about these things enough. So I would definitely say that it has uh that even um, forced or no force, there are still things that can happen once you're in the hospital, once you're in the, the, um, the confined walls, that can be very, very traumatic and very, very abusive. Yeah. So, and one thing I think a lot of people don't realize um, in psych wards, and thankfully I was able to avoid these, but is the restraints on beds. And, you know, I, I entered and I saw those restraints on the psychiatric beds and it freaked me out and it sobered me up. And I remember my mind was racing a million miles an hour, but I wanted to do everything in my control to stay on good behavior so I didn't get put in restraints. And so I imagine when you, you know, were being forced against your will to be catheterized, were you in restraints at that time? I imagine you had to be, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is that we're... We're just taught to be a a good patient, to be compliant, not necessarily how to be a better person. I think a lot of times these doctors, these nurses, um, bless their heart, they're probably at one point were very passionate about what they do. But I don't believe for a second that 90% of them give a shit about me once I leave the psych board. And that's a big problem because it's not they, they don't really care about me becoming a better person. 
all they care about is me being a better patient so they can discharge me and get on to the next patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of that is simply that our mental health system is just so overly impacted right now. You know, we don't have enough psychiatrists, we don't have enough therapists, enough mental health workers, and there is an absolute abundance of people with mental illness issues. So, you know, I think some of that lack of empathy and caring that you're talking about from the mental health professionals is, you know, maybe partially on themselves, but also a little bit outside their control because they just have so many patients that they're dealing with and it's just absolute chaos. I mean, it, like, for instance, I live in Yakima, Washington right now. For me to go and make an appointment with a psychiatrist takes me like five weeks to get a new appointment. And it's just absolutely, absolutely a struggle. So right now I have a distant relative of mine in forced treatment care. And I've been talking with him and I've been forced uh, mental health treatment care. And I've been talking with him and trying to help him to the best of my ability. And what he really feels about the system is he feels, he, he, he says it feels like a jail. Did it feel like a jail for you when you were in that situation? Oh yeah. I mean, cause I didn't want to be there. Yeah. And just because it, there weren't bars doesn't cause I was like, wasn't wearing like a, a prisoner's outfit and there wasn't a warden doesn't mean it didn't feel like a prison. And we're often told, well, it's a good thing that person was in the um, was inpatient in a psych hospital because it was either that or prison. You wouldn't want to be in prison. And the thing is, I mean, I know people who who thrive in prison that, that they'd rather be in prison than on the yeah. streets. And it's not about what the prison looks like or what you wear or what what the uh, authority's name is. It's about confinement and lack of choice that's what makes a prison a prison yeah and at least from my experience when i was in the psych ward i remember the thing i absolutely hated the most which made it feel like a jail is i couldn't go outside they had like this little sun room where you would get your sun for 20 minutes a day and then you'd be forced to go back inside. So I remember just pacing the whole hallways of that of the psych ward in the hospital, just being so bored, knowing that I was like, dude, if we can just go on a hike, I'm going to feel better mentally. But nope, oh, nope, for your safety and for all the other patients' safety, that's just not something we could do. And that was, for me, in a sense, extremely, extremely traumatic and something that I absolutely hated. Yeah, and I often think about, like, you know, that it's on lockdown, the psych ward, and there's all these like emergency buttons and um, there's all these emergency precautions that the staff takes in case someone gets violent. And I often think about if there wasn't such so many confinement, if it wasn't on lockdown, if it wasn't just this general feeling of being in a prison, would people get violent? Would it, Would people not want to be there and run away the first chance they get? Yeah, certainly. And really, I mean... I wanted to talk about this later, but I think this is a good moment to talk about it now. You know, I know you have such a, uh, a strong feeling against forced treatment. So what do you think potentially could be an alternative to, to the system as it works now? Instead of forcing people into treatment, um, what would you like to see happen? Well, in an ideal world, I think more people would go through a more just legal system. So when we're placed in these hospitals, we don't really have any legal rights for the most part. So, but if we are going to a trial, we have more legal protections. Now, obviously that uh, if you have a public defendant who's overworked as well, you're not gonna get the best outcome, but in a more ideal world, and it would be more constitutional if someone who was say convicted of a violent crime um, was going went through the legal system that was just, then that would be better because at least they weren't placed in a psych ward where they didn't have a way to defend themselves legally. And beyond that, I mean, there are other ways such as peer respites where people can go to just go out and, and hang out and calm down because oftentimes that's just what we need. We need to calm down and we don't have it anywhere mostly because it's our family situation or it's our work situation or spouse. And there's this feeling like you feel trapped. That's how I felt when I was in the army. I felt trapped. And if I had a place to go to cool down for a while and talk to peer counselors and talk to people who get it and weren't just trying to look for those hot words where they can place me into a hospital, then I would have been much better. But there is not one solution. And I think that's what people get 
um, locked down on is that it's either the hospital or jail or the streets. And no, there needs to be more variety in options. And oftentimes, the person just needs to be left to their own will and we'll figure it out. I think too often we're too paternalistic where we know that if we leave a certain person alone, they're going to make bad decisions and we need to make decisions for them. And maybe, but yeah. too often we jump to that conclusion. Yeah. And really my, my hopeful solution for, you know, for psychiatric care is one thing you mentioned right there is like peer support and peer, you know, co-educators or peer therapists, because once I was able to meet other people with bipolar disorder, I was able to feel so much better and so much able to really internalize and digest what was going on with me. And then I also look at my experiences being inpatient versus outpatient. And so, you know, when I was in my inpatient unit for you listeners, you know, that meant I was on the psych ward. I was there for seven days in a row, locked down. It was not very fun. I'm still thankful I went there, but it wasn't a good time. But then the next two weeks, I was able to do an outpatient program where I was still able to stay at my parents' house, and then they took me to these day um, group therapy programs. And I just remember getting so much more out of those experiences because I still like felt part of the community. I think when we force these people into these psychiatric units where sometimes you know they're not there for a week, they might be there for months at the time, they feel completely plucked out of the community and so different and alienized. And I think that's really where a lot of the stigma comes from is because we make these people feel like they're not wanted or part of the community anymore. And so my solution, hopefully as a psychiatrist, is I would like to be more of an outpatient psychiatrist, uh, more of maybe an e-medicine psychiatrist, where instead of even having to come to my office, they could FaceTime like we're doing right now, and hopefully I can have some powerful connection with them still and motivate them to, you know, make proper decisions in their life and take care of themselves. But that's what I hope my solution can be to improving the mental health uh, system. I know that a lot of people who live with these type of issues, though, don't have safe places to live like I did with my parents during my time of crisis. So, you know, like you said, there's no perfect solution here. There's not going to be an option that works for everybody. But I really hope there are more options that are developed over the years to come. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned about the making us seem like the other, um, especially people you'll see on the streets, people you you run in the other direction of. And the more we can make people feel as if they are part of the community, the less scary they will be. It doesn't mean we have to make friends with everyone and like and love and like live in harmony. We just got to make sure that people feel as if they're not some alien piece of shit crazy who's just going to like kill and rape everyone. We can, we can live in a society. Yeah where we treat people with respect without slapping on these labels on them and making them less than. And I think when we get to that, then we won't have to lock people up either in a, in a um, prison institution or a psychiatric institution. I think that's possible. Yeah, I do too. And I think it's going to take, you know, politicians that are more sensitive to mental illness. I think it's going to take uh, politicians who do live with mental illness. You know, I really hope that maybe one day I can get involved with politics. I see actually see you potentially being a great fit of maybe one day role in a p- political role. But, you know, I don't know. There is noon 2032. Dude, I'm down. Let's do it. Let's do it. But so... You know, like I said at the beginning, a lot of my listeners, I think, are medical students or they're pre-medical students. They're hoping to get involved in maybe a similar path that I'm doing. So right now I'm a second year med student. And then in my third year, I'm going to be doing clinical rotations. And one of those clinical rotations will be uh, psychiatric. And typically it's a four to six week long rotation where part of that is an outpatient where you're in a typical psychiatric office or a clinic, but part of that will also be an inpatient. And so they are going to be dealing with patients who most likely some of them are forced to be there. So how would you advise my medical school colleagues to better relate with those patients in forced care? You know, when I was in a psych ward and when I was in the army, um, one of the things that helped me get through that time is that I had a technician who was just treated us like people, was cool, would talk to us and chat with us, even when he didn't have to, even when it wasn't a group uh, therapy setting. And that made a big difference. Didn't make me want to stay there or glad that I met this person, but he made it bearable. And 
regardless of how you see psych wards, and we're not going to like dismantle them all overnight. Mm -hmm. So if you're working in that situation, you can be uh, the light in someone's darkness, basically, as cliche as that sounds, and do all you can to make sure you're not part of the problem. Because if I'm in a psych ward or most anyone who is in there forcefully, they're going to see you as the enemy, okay? Just how they would see a prison guard or warden or whatever. And if they can have some kind of trust there, just chatting with them, asking them if they, they want something to drink, if they want to go for a walk, something like that. Just the littlest things of just giving them options, giving them some semblance of choice can make a big difference. Doesn't mean you have to give them the keys and have them go run freely and and escape or anything like that. There are ways to still work within the boundaries of your job and still find ways to make sure people feel like humans in there. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds so easy, but it's such powerful advice. Just, you know, treat these patients like humans. Treat them as if, you know, it was maybe your brother or sister who was in that psych ward that you wanted to take care of. Um, Because I remember my psych ward experiences, I was so frustrated that I was locked down inside the whole time that I just spent the whole time walking. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, there probably wasn't enough uh, nurses on staff or uh, therapists, doctors, certainly. They're always busy. They're always running around doing something. So... I did feel often ignored and just alienated, and I would just walk the halls by myself, just really bored. And I remember I always stared at this one portrait they had of a mountain for hours because there was nothing else to do. The TV shows like, you know, fucking soap operas all day. It was just awful. But so I'd stare at this mountain all day, and finally one of the nurses came up to me, because they probably all thought I was psychotic out of my mind for staring at this for so long. They're like, why do you stare at the mountain? And I was like, you know, because I love skiing. And so when I stare at that mountain, it just makes me think of skiing. And I imagine the lines that I could take down this mountain. And it just makes me feel like I'm not in this psych ward anymore. And, you know, in this locked psych ward where there's a security card with, a, you know, ways to beat us if you wanted to, if things get out of control kind of thing. And just her showing that interest in me just made me feel so much more humanized, like you said. And so I think that's really great advice for my medical school uh, classmates. So thank you. So let's kind of transition this conversation now more towards your bipolar disorder. So when you were in that forced uh, treatment center, you know, I, I'm assuming it was more for your catatonic state at that time, right? Yes, I was actually hospitalized a few more times oh, okay. because, because of catatonic states. I, I've never been hospitalized specifically due to a manic state, let's say. Okay. Okay. So, you know, they were in the hospital taking, and for you listeners who don't know, catatonic state is, you know, you were paralyzed, right? And were you able to talk or were you completely had a sense of paralysis with all that your muscles in your body? What was that experience like for you? Yeah, I couldn't talk or move, but I can hear everything. That sounds very frightening. Yeah, especially when you're in the army and you don't know what can happen. So, yeah, I mean, um, I was discharged for that very reason, because if I was in a war zone, if I was in Afghanistan and uh, guns were going off and bombs were going off and I froze up, then that can lead to not only my death, but the death of potentially my entire company. Certainly. And how long would those catatonic states last, typically? Uh, Usually a couple of hours, which is a good thing, because there are some people where it can last weeks and they have to forcefully feed them. So thankfully, I never got to that. Yeah. Well, good. Well, good. So when's the last time you've had a catatonic state? I actually had one about a month ago. Oh, wow. I I was with my girlfriend and we were on... um, we were um, in my apartment, and so thankfully she knew not to uh, call the police or the ambulance or anything like that, and I was able to just uh, to bounce back on my own. And, I mean, the other times, too, I mean, that was it. It wasn't because of, like, something that the doctors gave me or anything like that. It was just I, my body needed to just, like, I guess, like, reset itself because I was just, like, experiencing too much tension, and that's why it froze, and I was able to to break out of it eventually when I guess my brain had taught me or told me that it's, it's okay now. Like you, the, you're not going to die and the worst is over. And so 
that's what I try to stress to people in advance because I may have I may have this happen again. It may happen in public, but the solution for me personally is not going to the hospital. Yeah. So is it more for you just trying to tell yourself like this is uh, temporary paralysis that I if I wait it out I know it will go away or are there any almost mantras that you try to say to yourself or you know internalize to yourself in your brain because I know you can't really speak in that moment that can help you process that catatonic state yeah well I'm constantly thinking and I'm I'm fearful especially where I am of being having the um, 911 called because that's a, that would be a disaster. I had I had one time where I was just plucked out of my um, my bedroom in in my home and put in restraints and taken to the emergency room, put a catheter in the whole nine yards, yeah. put in a psych ward, and this is just me in my own bedroom, just frozen, but not like I'm like psychotic or like that or trying to hurt anyone. So I can't. I can't imagine like why anyone in that field, whether it be the police or paramedics, firefighters, whoever, would think that that's a great idea to take this person out of their bedroom and put them in restraints and throw them in a psych ward. Yeah, so, it seems so interesting because, you know, when I think of restraints, I think of like, you know, patients who are flailing their arms or, you know, maybe they grabbed a knife, something where they might be violent to themselves or others, you know, that phrase that we always hear. And in a catatonic state of mind, it seems like you are not threatening at all. And, you know, you're just literally stiff. And um, so that's very, very strange to me. And, I, and I'm really sorry you had to go through that. That sounds just just absolutely terrible. And um, yeah. Well, I'm certainly not the only one who's yeah. experienced that. Yeah, it's very, very sad. And, you know, I hope that at least through me going to med school, trying to shove all these crazy facts into my brain, that hopefully I'll help to improve some of this understanding of exactly what goes on during that process when, uh, you know, you're dealing with that. Yeah, because I think if someone is like actively trying to attack you, you got to do what you got to do to protect yourself. But oftentimes there is danger perceived where it can be de-escalated. There's not enough training in de-escalation and the crisis prevention um, that doesn't just involve how can I uh, disarm this person or how can I um, like take this person down if they get too close. And I think there needs to be a lot more work there that needs to be done yeah. as far as seeing someone who can potentially be a threat but not jump to the conclusion that they can la lash out at me any time of trying to find solutions to de-escalate to the person so the person doesn't get to that point because it, it can be a possibility not saying yeah. that but there are solutions that can happen that can be implemented before that ever becomes a reality yeah and it just seems like you know through your experiences that providers may think that they're trying to help out this patient but they're not really realizing that the actual harm that they're causing and the trauma that they're causing by you know putting you in restraints uh you know making you deal with being catheterized. You know, right now, actually, in my medical training, we're learning how to insert catheterizations. And a big part that we have to do is at least explain to the patient, like, hey, I'm going to do this. Like, do you consent? Do you understand what I'm going to be doing? So, you know, being in that state of mind where you're essentially frozen and you certainly don't want that procedure to happen, I can imagine just being so frightening and, yeah, just absolutely terrible. Yeah, and the thing is, is that when I was catheterized, I was no, I was not in a catatonic state, so oh, okay. I was able to say, "Do not, I don't want to to do this." I mean, I could have easily have peed in the cup yeah. if they would have taken the restraints off me, and the fact that they didn't believe me, that was also very, very uh, traumatic. The fact that I, 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 I know what's going on in my mind. I know that I'm not a threat, but no one else will believe me, and they want to jump to all these conclusions. That just made me just never want to go to, to a, a psych hospital again, ever, ever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that feeling of resentment is something that a lot of people feel dealing with with doctors. And it's really sad. So I, I hope that me and you and, you know, it's going to take a lot of bigger effort than just me and you can help work towards improving the system to help out more patients because, you know, there's certainly a lot out there who need it. So you live with bipolar disorder. So when in your life 
you know, I know that you, you've told me that you were almost self-diagnosed bipolar disorder. And when, when was that confirmed really by a therapist or a psychiatrist? And, and what was that process like? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I don't like to say that I live with bipolar disorder. I feel like it's more a central part of me. It's not all of me. Mm-hmm. I don't see it as inherently a bad thing, which is why the word disorder gives me pause. Like, I'm, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not. I'm. I'm at. I'm at a point right now where I can be swayed either way, but yeah. I do not see it as an inherently bad thing that must be cleansed from people. Um, so I want to stress is that I, I have no problem saying that I am bipolar, but I also want to stress that it is not all that, um, defines me is that there are many other things about my being that have nothing to do with bipolar, but I, I wear that label, um, not necessarily like, yay, I'm bipolar, greatest mm-hmm. thing in the world, but the fact that it is a part of me and that I accept it and I embrace it, um, can you can you go back to the question again before well, I went off on my soapbox rant? <laughs> no, no, certainly. Well, I mean, my my diagnosis of bipolar disorder I felt was rather textbook. You know, it it came from I had a manic episode, I had these grandiose ideas where I thought I was Mark Zuckerberg, then I had paranoia, people were following me around, and I eventually was hospitalized. And I know your diagnosis was quite different. So can you tell people how you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Yeah, I had about two plus month manic episode. And at the time, it was the greatest thing in the world. I thought I was finally cured of depression. And I had all of this, this grandiosity about me, I thought I could be the greatest thing in the world. And people were trying to hold me back. I had all these money ideas, and no one would believe me people were trying to say that I was manic. And I didn't really know too much about that word at the time. For me, I thought that was a word that people use to to bring someone down, to say, well, you're not really a great person because that's just the mania. That's just your illness talking, okay? What you really are is a loser, and mm. you're not going to be able to accomplish anything because once that crash happens, then it's all going to be gone, and I would fight them tooth and nail for just almost every day of that episode um, of just constantly feeling like, no one is on my level. And I had all this grandiosity in my mind. I had it in me to like be this great world leader who can lead my people into just greatness. And that wasn't to be. And that reality check came where, not necessarily where I didn't believe I was worthy of greatness, but the fact that everyone else was against me and it became too hard to overcome that obstacle i gave up it wasn't that i thought like oh like i'm a piece of shit now no it was just like i'm so sick of fighting everyone else that you know what if no one else believes in me i'm not going to believe in me either yeah and so at that time did you find a therapist or psychiatrist that you liked um i was seeing a therapist at the time um i was seeing a therapist a about a half year prior to that, who I really, really clicked with. And the therapist that I was seeing was kind of their replacement because they had to go on to, uh, to go on to, uh, they, they had gotten their side And so they went on to, I guess, bigger and better things. Yeah. And, uh, my connection with this therapist was, was good, but it wasn't as solid and trustworthy as the prior one, but I still kept seeing him. And, the psychiatrist that I had was the same psychiatrist I was seeing before on under the LA County Department of Mental Health. And I never really got along with them. I I, I just, just kept, I just had to go get some kind of help because I was so depressed. And the thing was, is that since I, when I was manic, I didn't see a doctor. I wasn't taking meds. When I went back to the same psychiatrist, they didn't believe me. Because, like, I never saw any manic symptoms in you. No, you don't get it. Like, the whole time I was gone, that was because I was manic and didn't think I needed any help. Yeah, no one wants to go see a doctor when they're manic. Like, that's ridiculous, you know? Yeah, unless you you can make me more manic. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so so eventually, though, you were able to kind of, like we talked about earlier, almost like take out the extremes of those emotions, you know, through therapy, but also pharmacological means. Yeah, I mean, I would love to not have to take meds and still be my best self. And I've done it plenty of times. And um, I 
guess for now I'm going to be taking meds. So that's, that is what it is. I wish I didn't have to take meds and, but I know that when I'm on them that I can um, function efficiently and it's not like if I'm off meds, I'm just going to complete mess because I have enough supports in my life where that's just not going to happen. I no longer am in a toxic living situation. Um, I don't have any um, toxic relationships that I'm in. I'm, I'm not in like extreme poverty. So to an, to an certain extent, I'll be fine no matter what. But when I'm on medications, at least on the current ones that I'm, in, I'm on now, it definitely makes a positive difference. Yeah. And I, I really liked what you just said right there. Like, I don't like taking meds. And that's something that I, I really feel strongly about, too. Like, I don't like taking meds. I hope that I don't have to take meds forever. I know that, you know, I, I currently take valproic acid and it's potentially slowly killing my liver. And that's something that kind of scares the crap out of me. But that being said, I don't like flossing either. And it's something that I do to improve my health. And so really that's the philosophy I take and making that analogy towards other things that I do that aren't really that fun, but I know that are going to help me. So I just try to take it at a day-to-day -day basis of, you know, I, I'm not, I don't like this, but I know that this is helping me be more productive, taking out those wild, crazy extremes. And, and you, you know, the thing is, Logan, is that if you ever like got like gingivitis or whatever, or just horrible teeth, no one would force you to floss they just be like oh that's just like well that's your decision like if you want to get gingivitis or gum disease or whatever that's up to you uh you're dumb but still go for it knock yourself out whereas if like most people if they said that i'm just gonna stop taking my meds or i'm not gonna get on meds period then you'd probably like your family or whoever would try to find a way to force you to take them right interesting yeah that is a really interesting thought and i've never had anyone really kind of put it like that and, you know, one thing that my relative kind of told me in, in his experience with forced care is that he's not against pharmaceuticals and he'll take medicine if he needs to, but he's just against everything because he's forced to be there. And kind of like, like you said earlier, that confinement, that, uh, you know, loss of choice, loss of freedom. So he just really is having a struggle taking the medication because it's not his choice you know it's not something that he is choosing to do for his health it's something that he is legally obligated to do for his health right now and it's it is just very interesting because you don't you know people who have diabetes who don't take their insulin we don't force them to take insulin it's like well you know your pancreas is going to shit out and you're probably going to die and you know maybe we need to apply that same attitude towards psychiatric conditions as well yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I just don't see like why we draw the line on people um, labeled mentally ill and taking away their rights. And there's so many people who live such uh, more unhealthy lifestyles. I mean, I always hate it when people will try to give me advice about meds and stuff and they're like chronic smokers or whatever or they're reckless drivers on the freeway. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just, uh, my brain just, tries to not short circuit when I get situations like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so the last thing I want to bring up, I was interviewed by uh, Pacific Northwest university. It was a great interview. Uh, you know, please check it out. You listeners, if you haven't already. Um, but one thing we did talk about was it was right around the same time that Kanye West came out about his bipolar disorder on his album cover. Uh, you know, he's like, I hate bipolar. It's awesome. He talks about how like, you know, he views it as his superpower and one thing I also saw in that video that you recently posted is that you sort of agree with that to a certain extent, but you don't like the word superpower. So what do you really think about bipolar and, and you know Kanye West? Well, I think Kanye West is entitled to his own experience. If he wants to call it the greatest thing ever, then that's his right. The fact is, is that I think superpower in my opinion and many people i talk to is a bit extreme and a little bit of glamorizing um of a of bipolar i i i think about though to x-men where people that are they're given these powers and they're discriminated against because of them but if they find ways to manage them and harness the the power then they can do all these great things that others can't and so me i feel like that kind of that it, as long as you can manage it and find the advantages in it and embrace it then yeah bipolar can be a good thing it doesn't mean it's like a, 
walk in the park and full of rainbows and sunshine, but you can make the best of the situation, regardless of whether or not like you were, it was your choice to be bipolar, your choice to be a mutant. That's, that's beyond the point. It's about like, okay, what do you have now? Who are you? And how do you own up to it and make it, uh, make it your own? So that's as close as I can get to likening it to a superpower. Yeah. And really for me, how I look at it is I look at my brain processes, my emotions are no different than any other organ in my body. And so I, you know, a big part of my management of my mental health is exercising. And so I like to think of my mental illness almost as like a weight bearing exercise, as if I was like squatting. And so I look as my bipolar as like the heaviest squat that I've ever done in my life. And there's going to be certain days and certain times of my life where that that weight, that heaviness is going to be too much to bear and I'm not going to be able to do it. But there are going to be some times where I am able to squat that heavy weight. And because I'm able to handle this tremendous burden, I'm going to get stronger because of it. And I'm going to be able to accomplish more things in my life because of it. Maybe I'll have more energy. Maybe I'll have more creativity. Maybe I'll just be able to handle stress differently than someone else because I've experienced this wild array of emotions. But that being said, there's definitely going to be those hard days too, where that weight is just impossible, impossible to bear. And so that's really how I look at it and how I like to try to kind of attribute my mental illness. Cause I'm not crazy about looking at it as a superpower either. Cause then it still brings us back to something we were talking about earlier, like the, the us, the mentally ill versus them. Like, I don't want to say us people with mental illness are, or, or even bipolar disorder are different than other people. Like everyone can relate to what it's like to feel manic. Everyone can relate to what it's like to feel depressed or anxious or anything like that. So I don't want to really alienate us any further than we already are. Yeah. That's something I struggle with too, about wanting to say that my experience, like being bipolar is not just like everyone else, but also not wanting to pigeonhole myself and other myself and other people with bipolar. So it is a fine line and I don't, yeah, there's no easy solution. It's like other identities, other um, minorities that have been discriminated against that you don't want them to run away from their identity, even if it makes them other, even if it makes them discriminated against, but we don't want to be pigeonholed and being defined just by one thing, one aspect of our identity. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So one real last question I have for you, um, you know, I've done a, a lot of work with like Mental Health America, um, NAMI. I would like to get involved with uh, This Is My Brave, uh, that you're a part of. It seems like a great organization. Like I said, I hope you guys eventually do an event up a little bit closer to me. But when we use the word, a lot of people, when I came out about my mental illness, have thanked me for being brave. And, you know, I, I'll, of course, take a compliment when I can get it. But I haven't found that being open about my bipolar disorder has really required me to be as brave and courageous as I thought. Everyone, all the mental health professionals that I worked with warned of this incredible stigma that I would face living openly about my mental illness. And I've certainly faced it to some capacity, but I like to say it's about like one to 2% of all the interactions that I have about mental health. And for the vast majority, they've been really positive and really connecting and intimate. And, and I've, it's led me to deep conversations with other people. So do you think someone needs to be courageous and very brave to be open about their mental illness? Yeah, well, uh, I thought about this a lot and like Jennifer Marshall, who's the co-founder and executive director of This Is My Brave says, is that she hopes there'll be a day where talking about mental health won't be um, considered brave. It'll just be considered talking. And I was giving a speech at a conference in Phoenix last week where I said, I, I want, I want uh, you all to put me out of business because I don't want there to be a day where me speaking, uh, giving a big speech about mental health is a big deal. I, I it should be it, the reaction should be like, oh, Rudy Caceres is giving a speech about bipolar. So what? Like people talk about these things all the time. What's the big deal? Why is he any special? Why is he getting money to speak at a conference? Now that I might I might regret that when I have to live on the streets. <laughs> but, uh, I think I think that's the way it should be where everyone is talking about these issues. It's not brave. It just is. I think 
people have different experiences. Some are more extreme in certain aspects than others, especially with bipolar. Um, I'm not saying that like everyone is going to be able to understand the bipolar experience, at least not the way that I've experienced it or the way that you've experienced, because unless you've walked a mile in our shoes and you're not ever going to quite get it. So I think there's still something to be said for people's lived experience um, on an individual level to make good storytelling that is um, that is captivating, that does people, that brings people into a conference hall or into a theater that where people want to see that. But I don't think we should be at, we should be at a level right, right now, and especially not in the future, where it's just like, oh, hey, I'm Rudy and I have bipolar, now clap for me. It's, yeah. it's not where we should be. Yeah, certainly. Well, Thanks again for coming on the show today, Rudy. You know, I think we had a great conversation. I hope that you're willing to be kind of a regular guest on this show because I always have fun talking to you and uh, I definitely want to have you back on again. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to have you on my show, No Restraints, in the near future as well. So if you guys liked Rudy, you can find him at Rudy Caceres. That's C-A-S-E-R-E-S. Right? I'm spelling that right? Right on. Yes. Perfect. I'm yeah. on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find me on Facebook where I do No Restraints every Friday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. And I will make sure to tag you in all the Instagram posts and all this. So if you guys like this conversation, please give Rudy a follow. He produces some amazing content. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends, give it a rating, leave me a comment, whatever. You can find it on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes podcast. If you haven't used Stitcher yet, though, Stitcher actually is probably one of my favorite podcast platforms. No, this is not some plug for Stitcher because I'm getting an extra penny for them no, that would be fantastic if I was, but I'm actually just telling you my favorite app that I use for podcasts because I am a big podcast consumer and getting better at producing them. So if you are liking me producing podcasts, please comment, share, whatever. I want to hear. I want to know what you want me to talk about, who you think I should interview. Thank you again for tuning in. The, I didn't realize you liked me that way deal. Because it's one thing to receive McDonald's, but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you McDonald's breakfast still hot in the bag. Appreciate you. There's a deal for every morning. Now grab two loaded sausage burritos for only three bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.